Welcome to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm Yuri Kruman, founder and CEO of Commander-in-Chief Media Group, award-winning chief people officer and keynote speaker, author of five books, Fortune 500 consultant and corporate trainer, and contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Newsweek. Our mission at Commander-in-Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, HR consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people become their own Commanders-in-Chief. Now, if you're interested in being a guest on the Commander-in-Chief podcast, stick around until the end of the show. We will share with you what we're looking for and how to apply. Hey guys, this is Yuri Kruman, the host of Command Guest. I'm really excited today to speak to Emmanuel Streshnov, the CEO of Bubble. Bubble is a company I've been following for quite some time. Um, I'm not a you know very technical kind of person. Um, maybe that's why I'm drawn to no-code kinds of platforms. Uh, but Bubble in particular, that was the first one that I came across. This was, it's been a while. It's, I feel like it's at least maybe six six years, if not more. I remember sitting in Brooklyn and I kind of came across this like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Imagine imagine someone like me who has no clue about, you know, some kind of GitHub repositories. Like I could just take stuff, connect it, maybe like make an app. I remember that. That was cool. Things have changed since then. Um, clearly, the company has grown like bunkers. You know, you guys have taken on funding. I want to hear all about it. But first, I want to give you the floor. Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself, you know, your story, your company. Well, uh, good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'll go pretty briefly on my story and then talk a little bit about Bubble, which I think uh, will be more interesting. Um, originally from France, came to entrepreneurship fairly late in the sense that I never really thought I would be an entrepreneur uh, until I became an entrepreneur. Uh, I did a lot of hacking when I was in high school. Like I, I was doing things, but I was from France and very French. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, I was told, you know, you should be good at math and work for the government. And that's kind of what I had in mind um, until the age of 24. Kind of last minute, decided I want to spend a few years abroad and move to Asia uh, to work in China for a bit. And that's when things started going wrong in a sense that, you know, I kind of went away from the path I had set for myself when I was a teenager and, uh, and then moved to the U.S. for business school. During business school, again, never thought I would be an entrepreneur, really. Kind of started playing with some ideas. Uh, years during school, but because I was not a citizen, I was told also that it was not easy to start a company in the United States until um, at the end of my program. So I graduated from Harvard in May, started looking for jobs in, in tech, like at startups. And um, when I was about to accept an offer from a New York-based startup, uh, I met Josh, who was looking for a co-founder, and we decided to partner on our first coffee meeting. So I woke up that morning not thinking I'm going to start a company. And by the end of that day, June 2012, I was actually starting a company. Uh, and then, yeah, now it's almost 10 years later, uh, here we are. We've had a little bit of a non-traditional journey, uh, as you pointed out. Like, we've been around for a long time, probably were the earliest player in the no-code space uh, for small businesses, startups, and individuals. I would say also the companies that try to push the limit of what you can do without code further than the others, in the sense that the product is takes more time to learn, but is much more powerful. And we were able to do that because... And that's a non-traditional part. We were we didn't fundraise for the first seven years of the business. 
So all of that was basically self-funded. Josh and I, just for five years, being the two of us, then started building a team as we had enough revenue, and then eventually took funding three years ago, and then last year for a much bigger round. And so I've seen the different stages, you know, of startup life, you know, from like two guys in coffee shops, mostly in Brooklyn, actually. So we yeah. could have met there um, to, you know, some co-working spaces to now, well, now the office is not very relevant. I mean, we have one, but it's not like we go there every day because of the circumstances. But now, you know, being like a growth stage VC back startup. Very cool. Um, we'll, we'll dig a bit more into that, but um, just, just for some background, um, my wife also is French and she also is an engineer. And yes, there's a very heavy bias towards uh, math and engineering of, of every sort. Um, so she went to uh, Post-Chaussee, which is uh, Roads and Bridges. Yeah, I did the same thing. Uh -huh. I did the same thing. Yeah. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah, so... Um, but I, I presume she's not building bridges right now, right? No, 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 she's not. She works uh, at ST Lauder, actually. She does uh, kind of the insourcing infrastructure, if you will. The business analytics, business intelligence, that kind of stuff. Um, interestingly enough, maybe I don't talk enough about my wife on the podcast, but that's not for this. <laughs> so civil engineering and then, you know, there's business school is, is one very common path. There's consulting, there's finance. I mean, those are the prototypical things. So... You're right. Even though now, if you look at Paris and the startup ecosystem, it's booming. It's one of the very best, certainly in Europe, if not the best. Yep. And, um, you know, it's spilled over well into the U.S. and, and Israel and, and, and other places. So I definitely appreciate that, uh, you know, you took, you took a different route. So let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into um, your journey. So first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit more about bubbles. So, yeah, okay. You know, you hear a, a lot of terms thrown around, no code, low code. Okay, I'm just Joe Schmo. I'm coming across the show. And okay, I mean, yeah, I'm not a coder either. What can I do if I go and use Bubble? Like, what, what, am I, what am I building? What can I build with, for example? So in technical terms, what you can build is called a web application. A web application is a website that has functionality similarly to, you know, Twitter.com, Airbnb.com, um, all these services that people use where the website is not just, you know, something that shows information, but something you can interact with. And you're going to be able to interact with because there's going to be a database. So if you're building Yelp.com, for instance, you're going to have all the apartment, all the restaurants, all the reviews, all, you know, the different things that that shows. It's usually user generated. So it's becoming a platform. So in Air on Airbnb, the apartments are submitted by people like and other people are renting them. And you can have very customized flow in a web application saying when you click on that button, it's not just, you know, going to take you to another page. You can start charging credit cards, sending, you know, emails, like doing all kinds of things that create real functionality. And so what Bubble lets you build is basically that. And today I'm very proud to say we're the only tool on the market that lets you build something like this. No code today is a very buzzy word. And so a lot of people are in no code. But in practice, when you look at the different players in the space, we don't really compete with each other. Usually people compare us to Webflow, who is the other big player in the space. Webflow is a fantastic tool if you want to build like, you know, a CMS, a blog, a landing page, and they're marketing websites of many companies that are running on Webflows and they do an amazing job at that. But if you're trying to build something like Airbnb.com, when you're gonna have users creating an account, submitting apartments, another type of users, you know, creating accounts, searching for the apartments they want to book, book them, have the financial transaction happen, you're not going to be able to do that with Webflow, and you will be able to do that with Bubble. So in other words, to make it simple, Bubble is open-ended and is much more powerful. 
Now, there is a catch, and I'm always upfront about that catch, which is when you have more flexibility, there is more learning curve. So Bubble takes more time to learn. You can go, you can make mistakes in Bubble, similarly to, you know, the, usually the comparison I use is Excel. You can build a financial model or a family budget on Excel, but if you make a mistake in your formula, you're not result. And so you have to be careful and sometimes fix your mistakes. Bubble is very similar to that. So it's much more accessible than code, but still takes a few hours to learn. And you're going to have to, you know, build your product like an engineer would, but the is it's not with code, which in practice expands, you know, the number of people that can actually build things by probably a factor of a hundred. And that's a really cool part. Very cool. I'm, I'm thinking about something. Let's zoom out for a minute. So let's say, okay, again, if I'm not the most sophisticated person, I haven't worked in tech for years, I'm not a coder, I'm coming at this, I'm just an intelligent person. I'm trying to, my gears are spinning. Okay. So if you look at, let's say, totally other industries, you look at law, medicine, finance, over the last, let's say, five to 10 years, there's quite a big movement toward, okay, there's automation, there's AI, machine learning, and buzzy, 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 blah, blah, blah. In practice, what does it mean? It means a lot of generalists are out of a job, right? Because somebody's doing it cheaper in India. The you know algorithm is is probably doing that document review really well without the junior associates, right? So there's more of a movement toward, okay, I'm I'm a really niche expert in some kind of you know I don't know complex uh, financial instruments uh, as a lawyer or in finance for that matter, right? And in medicine, I'm I'm a top specialist in this particular kind of, you know, very specialized surgery. And the, the people that are fresh out of school, they're kind of like, you know, either they stick with it and they, they have to kind of go through the, somehow make it through the middle selection rounds, which are now much more selective because again, cheaper, cheaper ways of processing all that stuff. Um, looking at no code and low code, I'm just, again, thinking out loud. I'm not the most sophisticated guy in tech, right? But I'm thinking, look, how does this affect software developers okay so let's say uh yeah there are always new languages and whatever but if i'm a if i'm a again just joe schmo i want to build something and i'm like hey you know what let me try this myself first does that mean that software development is also moving in that direction meaning more specialized kinds of work higher quality something that's beyond the entry point just curious i hope so i mean that's very much the goal i mean what we're saying today is that we have a lot of engineers like doing work that should not require engineers because it's kind of reinventing the wheel a lot. You know, if you look at Uber and Lyft, you know, two fantastic companies, but what's the difference? One is black, the other one is pink, but effectively it's the same software that they're building, right? And so what we're saying is that it's a shame for the world actually, because we need engineers to work on harder problems because there will always be hard problems for engineers to solve. And that's why they could create like fantastic value. Uh, probably in things that would be more world-changing and life-changing for humanity than, you know, food delivery startups, uh, if, you, if, if, I may, if I may say that. Um, we're definitely not going to put, like, you know, software engineers uh, out of job. Like, I'm not worried for them. They will always find places where they can, you know, the ability to write code is such, like, a, a rare skill that you will always find places where you can use them. But hopefully, we'll change it for the best in the sense that they'll start working on interesting things. And then the other thing I would say is, um, for the example you've given of generalists in these industries, like, you know, lawyers, you know, in the business world, these people whose jobs are being transformed by technology, Bubble is actually the risk, and no code in general, but Bubble in particular, is actually the response to that as well. Because what's more and more 
is that if you're not able to create automation in some of some kind at work, you're actually going to have at some point issues creating value because that's where most of the productivity gains happen. And so that's the reason why, you know, all, pretty much all governments in the world have tried to teach kids how to code because people see that. Um, and the analogy that we've seen in the past is, you know, productivity to tools like Microsoft Office. Today, if you can't use Microsoft Office and Microsoft Excel, you're going to have a, have a hard time to be productive in an office environment. Uh, and what we're saying is that what happened with Excel between, you know, the 90s and today, it's going to happen with programming over the next, you know, decade or so. And so I very much appreciate, you know, the ambition of government to train kids how to code. But what we've seen in practice is that that doesn't actually work because coding, and I can say that as a coder, you know, I have many, many, many millions of lines of code behind me. Coding is not for everyone. It, it kind of sucks, honestly. Like, you know, you need to be very careful to the comma. And it's not something for, for everyone. And so it's important to change the medium. And the medium, if it's visual, much more exactly what bubble is about so the hope is that people who are getting some uh concern are being concerned about you know the value they can create at work because they can program should get on no code because that's actually how they can catch up very cool yeah thank you for that perspective i think it's it's definitely helpful just to understand that it, it, alarmism is just that right somebody needs to write a story somewhere and oh this profession's out of business or you know, it's it's a lot of blah 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 there's plenty of room for everybody to do their thing especially in coding. Cool. Um, so I want to I want to go a little bit deeper into your story. So, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about pivot points. And, you know, it's not just like, oh, you know, I had a hard time pitching investors. Uh, okay, everybody has a hard time pitching investors. But, you know, you're someone who comes from, you're, you're an immigrant, right? You came from France. And, you know, you came from a different background when you entered business school. I think, I, I don't know what percentage of, let's say, uh, business schools in particular, you know, at Harvard, where you were in your class, what percentage of people were coders? And I would venture to say it's probably, a, you know, not a very large proportion compared to bankers, consultants, etc. So yep. given the pivot points that you've had both in your career and with growing bubble and, you know, getting it in into the market, helping people kind of to understand, to educate them, to take us through some of those pivot points um, that have been particularly difficult. Difficult as painful or pivot points that just made me realize I wanted, I wanted to course correct what I was doing because I can, I can see it either any way, and actually. Any and all of the above. All are helpful. And it doesn't have to be specific to bubble, actually. Not at all. Not at all. So when I was in business school, um, I actually came to business school with the idea of being uh, an investor or a banker. And it's not like particularly original when you go to HBS. I mean, that's what Harvard Business School is known for. Yeah. Uh, and the pivot point was the week when we interview for companies in January. And it's a pretty weird week. It's before classes start again during the winter break. It's like really cold um, in Boston at that point because it's like late January. I, I don't speak in Fahrenheit yet. That's one thing I need to learn in the US, but in Celsius, it's minus 18. It's really cold. Like it's like <laughs> freezing cold uh, weather. We haven't seen these kind of temperatures for years. And, and I remember walking, wearing my suit um, to the hotel where that is close to campus where we're interviewing and spending days interviewing with banks. And the turning point, the pivot moment was at the end of the week was 
And maybe the weather, because I mentioned the temperature uh, here, because maybe that was kind of the reason why I was not happy. But I remember coming out of that interview week being like, this is not what I want to do here. Like, I'm not enjoying what I'm doing in these interviews. Like, the kind of things I'm talking about is not what I want to be thinking about when I go to work and when I work. The people I'm interviewing, I mean, they're very nice, but it's not the kind of people I want to be working with every day. Um, and no offense, I mean, it's just like a different personality, different type, and we're driven by different things. And I ended up spending my summer in fashion. <laughs> and that was really not the plan uh, when you know I joined uh, business school. And I ended up spending time in New York um, at Prada for the summer. I'm trying to think of other things. Like Paul is a little bit different because it's been such a long journey where you do the same thing, but then you incrementally change things. Like obviously when we started and just had two people um, for five years doing everything ourselves, you don't think in scale. Like you think in, you know, let's be extraordinarily efficient in what you do because we just have four hands to do everything. We were constrained by cash at that point, And I still think it was the right call not to raise money. So we didn't really have our options here. Um, and we had to, you know, support already a few thousand users at that point. Like it was not like totally nothing. And so you have to find ways to do things that are incredibly scalable, mm -hmm. sometimes at the cost of um, quality, like bluntly, you know, like uh, if you just have two people doing everything, it's not as high quality as if you have an entire team doing everything. I processed, I did all of support myself for five years. I think I processed more than 20,000 tickets personally, you know, support tickets. Um, but then I wouldn't say there was a pivot point. I mean, it was a little bit challenging for us to start thinking in scale. So it, we, but it happened gradually. We started building a team for maybe, you know, um, for, uh, for started building a team of like six people in addition to Josh and I. But then when we started fundraising and even more last year, when suddenly, you know, we were, had raised a hundred million dollars. So it's a lot of money that you can actually uh, deploy and it does take work. Then we had to start thinking in scale systems, and basically mostly like building a team. At some point, that's what I'm doing today. I wouldn't call that though, I don't think there has been pivot points. One of the weird things of the bubble history, and in some ways, you know, everyone says, you know, all businesses pivot at some point and they do something different. We actually never have uh, in a sense that, you know, we started with the same vision nine years ago with the same customer in mind. It just happened that I guess we were right probably too early, but because we didn't raise money, we were not burned out. Because if you raise money, I think it, it's challenging to go for nine years. And sometimes financially, you even can't do it. But for us, since we didn't, we were bootstrapping for all these years, we started early, but that was not too bad. And then just turned out that the category we we're building for uh, became bigger. Uh, and we had been screaming that to people like many, many, many years before, and no, no one really believed us. And suddenly now, now it's a thing. Um, but again, we did not pivot, actually, in some ways. Uh, we're kind of still building the same product we had in mind nine years ago for the same people uh, and hoping they succeed the same way. I mean, we're building for primarily non-technical people in need of a product very frequently when they need to launch a company. And we want our companies to succeed. And that's what we're trying to do today. It hasn't changed. Very cool. Well, I mean, I don't know about listeners, but uh, I have a burning question. How did you come up with this stuff? I mean, you're a coder. You've been doing this a long time. Yeah, you've got the business background. I mean, fashion, not fashion. But how do you come to the idea? What What's that moment? Give us that moment. I don't know. You're sitting in Brooklyn in a coffee shop with your partner. Like, what the hell? Let's do a no-code platform. Like, how, how So 
it's actually not my idea. So I can tell you from the outside how it happened because when I met Josh, he already had that idea and was looking for someone to join him. Mm -hmm. um, the idea for him is coming from a personal story, actually. Most ideas come from personal stories. What is true is that it's a pretty, not that many people had that idea because most coders don't necessarily see the point of building a local platform with the code. So his story was the, this one. Um, he has worked at a hedge fund for a few years and wanted to do a startup, but he wasn't too sure what type of things to build, was not particularly plugged in the startup ecosystem. And it was like 2010, you know, so 2011. So a little bit earlier, the startup real thing started. I mean, Airbnb had been founded maybe two years prior or something like that. And he ended up meeting someone on, um, you know, these websites where people match uh, technical people and non-technical people to start companies. I think it was I called like, know, right? Just kidding. <laughs> co-founder co labs, I think is how it was called. Uh, and he met someone on the forum like that who had an idea for a product. And so he kind of liked the guy. The guy was a non-traditional uh, founder in the sense, you know, he was not like Harvard educated. Actually, I don't think he graduated college, um, but he was like a deep domain expert for like one particular job that is called a image keyworder. So you put keywords on image images, like for photo stock companies. And that was before, you know, hashtags on Instagram and machine learning and all those things. And he had an idea for a better tool. And so Josh decided to join him and they built the product together. What happened though, when they went to market is that they realized, you know, that they had good traction in the sense that people with that job really loved the product and that was making, they were willing to pay for it, but there were not enough people in the world for that. And so that at some point, you know, pretty quickly, Josh realized that would not be making enough money for both of them to have like a good salary, especially when you're an engineer and, you know, you could be making a six digit uh, comp at Google or Facebook. And so Josh ended up quitting and as he quit, uh, it basically killed the startup at some point. I mean, Josh was helping him a little bit on the side on a part-time basis, but at some point, not having the CTO full-time kind of killed uh, killed the project and the company ended. And Josh felt pretty bad about this for two things. Uh, the, the first thing was, it basically was screwing his co-founder and he felt bad about that from a human standpoint because they had worked together. And then the second thing is, he felt pretty strongly that the product they had built still was a good thing for the world. Like it's certainly what making the life of the few hundreds of keywords in the world better. Yeah. But the problem is the market opportunity was not enough to sustain uh, an engineering team. And so it came down to solve his own problem, kind of, you know, solve his own guilt of dropping was like, we need to find a way so that this guy, like his co-founder can do that without me. And so that these image keywords can actually have a software to do their job better that doesn't cost you know millions of dollars. You don't need to raise like insane amounts of money to build a product, and that's uh, that's how it happened. Actually, you know that's exactly what they did. Uh, and the idea behind Bubble was to empower Jody. I mean, that's the name of his co-founder to build that on his own. Um, and this is actually deeper than it sounds. You know, like if you look today, software can be making the life of people much better if applied in the right way. There are so many places where you know. Technology can be good. The problem is it's so expensive to create if you use traditional software engineering that not it doesn't get applied in situations where there's not a massive market opportunity. And so the reason why you see today so many billions of dollars from venture capital is going to try to create like you know platform for like mass affluent individuals or like fairly wealthy millennials in big cities is because that's where the money is. 
And it's, it's not a bad thing, but there are a lot of people in the world that could benefit probably more from software than, you know, you and I, like being, you know, in New York, or like big cities like this. Um, and it just does not happen because no one wants to give money to these projects because the market opportunity is not big enough. And so what we need to do again, and that's a different way to frame what Bubble is about, which is maybe not as sexy and as inspirational, but as deep and as important, which is we're making technology maybe 100x cheaper to build. And therefore, software can be used in situations where it would not be affordable before to do that. That's interesting. We, we've had a lot of conversations here with people that build, uh, I mean, either they build software. So uh, Ariel SRF of CoreLogix, for example, here she did a beautiful rundown of how you know software is eating the world and what, it, what does that mean and how, how it draws data and all of that stuff. Um, that's, that's another very interesting way to look at it. Uh, Brian Smith of IA Advisors uh, also gave a very good um, example of, uh, of, of some of these questions. Infrastructure, right? I mean, for me, that's, it's, it's not as sexy because, yeah, you don't have Juicero. <laughs> you don't have some kind of a product that, uh, you know, but it's, it's something that is selling the pickaxe. That's always going to work, right? It's much harder to build in a way, but it can democratize things. It can democratize access. Um, it can create all kinds of effects of much greater magnitude. So for me, that again, I, I'm just I'm thinking back, you know, <laughs> in the coffee shop back in um, you know um, Crown Heights, where where I was sitting, I think six years ago, and I, yeah, I found I found Bubble. I was like, wow, that's. I mean, I, I didn't take it far enough. I, I guess you know, too many other pressing concerns, whatever. But it really stuck with me. It was like, wow, I I can without any background in app making or you know uh, coding, I can go and just like play around with it, connect data sources with outputs. I can you know design what the app looks like, and I can actually do some interesting operations. And imagine I could you know if I had maybe more time, <laughs> I could actually build something useful for myself. Never mind for someone else. Yep. I'm glad. I'm glad that this has come uh, now to a much kind of greater audience. I'm glad that there's a lot more uh, funding in this direction. You know, there's there's a lot to say which we won't say. Uh, last thing I want to ask you before you go. So every guest who comes on the show gives us some element of life wisdom around any or all of four conversations around uh, you know with one's body, mental models and life skills, dealing with other people, and God or the universe. So. Share with us anything you can around uh, any of those four. We'd love to hear it. I mean, I, I guess I'll talk about my own experience and, and I want to preface this that I know I'm very privileged and I had the opportunity and the, you know, the safety around me to choose what I wanted to do. Uh, and so if you are in that situation and it's not everyone, but it's a fair amount of people, you know, if you have like a good educational background or, you know, some family, help if something goes wrong. I very much recommend going from some, something that is truly exciting. And something truly exciting means, you know, am I willing to do this for 10 years on a very low salary and still enjoy my life? Um, and in our case, that meant is, you know, I pretty much didn't have any salary for five years and I loved what I was doing. And clearly, I mean, I knew that if things were to work out, you know, financially, I would be doing well eventually. But, you know, for five years, you know, like, I was like 32 and still living with college graduates as roommates in New York, which is not exactly the kind of things you imagine when you go, when you have a Harvard MBA and all your classmates work in banking. But I knew I was, <laughs> but, but I knew I was like 
happier than many of them because my job like it was truly what I wanted to do. And I really felt like that's I, I was in the right place at the right time doing what I the right thing. And that was something that and because it was I think useful, but more importantly, I mean honestly, because I, I loved doing it. Like I I rediscovered post-business school the pro- pleasure of building digital products and I had forgotten to love that. And so I, I very much would recommend people when they're about, you know, to pick a job, how much do they actually how much excitement do they have for that job and ask themselves without talking to other people. When you talk to other people, you start thinking about how they perceive your job and that's a very dangerous thing. The number of people I saw in my class going to, and don't get me wrong, I mean, if you really love those jobs, those are great jobs, but going to banking, consulting, these kind of professional services, because it's kind of what you're meant to be doing when you go have like an MBA from a school like that. And I know that they were not that the happiest at work. Uh, that that I feel like that was a big missed opportunity for them. Alignment, alignment, alignment. And we'll finish with that. Emmanuel, thank you so much. This was a great interview. Really appreciate having you on. Hope we can do this again. Thank, thank you. you very much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Commander-in-Chief Podcast. To apply to be a guest on the show, head on over to cicmediagroup.com backslash guest. CIC is in Commander-in-Chief. So that's CICmediagroup.com backslash guest. These guys, help us spread the word about the podcast and our mission on social media. We're cooking up something truly special over here, and we really need your help to spread the message. The reviews, especially, are huge for helping us grow and get the golden nuggets of wisdom from our world-class guests out into the world. Go on ahead, give us a review or rating on whichever platform you use to listen. Our mission at Commander Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people to become their own Commanders-in-Chief. And before you go, please make sure to hit that subscribe button for us here at the Commander-in-Chief Podcast so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. Let's not be strangers, friend, okay? Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. And, of course, if you want to learn more about our work and impact or just access some great content, plenty of that, head on over to cicmediagroup.com. That's uh, CIC as in Commander-in-Chief, mediagroup.com. Once more, this is Yuri Kruman, and thanks for listening.